0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm a little embarrassed to say that I became an activist because of a mouse. In 1998, I was a constitutional law professor. I was focused on a subject called fidelity, meaning the study of the interpretive relationship we have to our Constitution, whether we can be faithful to its original meaning. Some people refer to this as originalism, or using the font of the original Constitution, originalism, but the focus here was how to keep the commitments of the Constitution through time. I was also studying the subject called cyber law, which is the relationship of law to technology, I was working on a book at the time, which eventually became this book, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. In this book, I studied the regulation of cyberspace and the techniques by which cyberspace got regulated. So, for example, I thought about the interaction between the law and the markets and norms and technology in perfecting the opportunity for government to control or not control how behavior happens in cyberspace. And the particular relationship that was the focus of my concern was the relationship between legal policy and technical architecture. And here, intellectual property was actually the most interesting subject. Because intellectual property law says that the law is to be limited, meaning the control that a copyright owner has, for example, over his creative work is supposed to be limited but the technology itself that is used to protect intellectual property need not be limited at all. For example, the term of a copyright is supposed to be limited, but the code could wrap it up in protective control for much beyond the term of copyright, or fair use is supposed to be guaranteed for a copyrighted work, but the fair use practice could be interfered with by technology that made it impossible to exercise fair use rights. And the point of this study, this very academic study of the time, was to understand that the interaction between technology and policy was the focus that the law had to have. If it wanted to get the policy right, it had to understand this interaction. Then in late 1998, I read this article in the New York Times written by Carl Kaplan about a man named Eric Eldred. Eric Eldred had just announced a desire to engage in a kind of civil disobedience because of a law Congress was going to pass. This law would make it impossible, he thought, for free archives of culture to be built, and he decided to oppose the law in the only way that he thought he could. The law was inspired by this man, Sonny Bono, who was a congressman, died in uh, the late 1990s, and his widow, Mary Bono, Took it upon herself to sponsor and push through Congress the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act. Now, this act extended the term of existing copyrights and future copyrights, but it wasn't even as much of an extension as she or Sonny Bono would have wanted. As she said when she introduced the act, actually, Sonny wanted the term of copyright protection to last forever. I am informed by staff that such a change would violate the Constitution. As you know, there is also Jack Valenti's proposal for a term to last forever less one day. Perhaps the committee may look at that in the next Congress. Well, Eric Eldred decided that this act by Congress deserved his own civil disobedience, but I was concerned that while civil disobedience like this might get you into jail for one or two nights, The civil disobedience that Eric Eldred was talking about would expose him to up to $150,000 in fines for every single copyrighted work he made available through his act of civil disobedience. So the question I asked in my nerdy academic form was whether this act of Congress was actually constitutional. Well, like any constitutional law professor, the first thing I did was to look at the text of the Constitution. And here it is in its original font. Congress has the power, according to the Progress Clause of the Constitution, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Now, the structure of this clause is actually very unique in American uh, constitutional law. It expressly states the relationship between the means and the ends. There's an exclusive right, but the exclusive right is to be deployed to promote progress. The exclusive right is to be granted for limited times, the limited times to be deployed to promote progress. They built these limits into the grant of this power because they understood this was a dangerous tool. The power to grant monopolies was a dangerous tool, and it had to be carefully guarded to make sure that it was not abused. So just like the power to declare war had to be guarded by being guaranteed, controlled by Congress. So, too, monopolies had to be guarded by guaranteeing that the only monopolies that could be granted are those that would be to promote progress. So, I looked at this statute and I asked the question, does a statute designed to grant 20 years of protection to works that already exist, granting an exclusive right for another 20-year period of time for works that already exist, promote the progress of science? And obviously, it doesn't. Since the works exist, there's no promoting of anything except the profits of a few companies. And therefore, in my view, according to the text, this was unconstitutional. But the history of the clause confirmed this understanding. The clause originates from a certain English experience with a corrupt king, or a series of corrupt kings, who had a practice of handing out monopolies for things that already existed. For example, there was a monopoly to print the Bible, or a monopoly to produce playing cards. These monopolies were essentially sold to the highest bidder, and the king took the revenue as a way to raise revenue, but they obviously suppressed competition, and therefore suppressed the economy in Britain. The statute of monopoly, was the first effort of the Parliament to fight this practice of the King, and then the Statute of Anne was the practice in the context of copyright. The United States took the idea of the Statute of Anne and made one step better. That was to put this into the Constitution of the United States, express power to grant monopolies over speech, but limited by the purpose to promote progress. Even that was not good enough to Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson worried that this was too dangerous a power to exist at all, but after a period of convincing by James Madison, Madison was able to convince Jefferson the limits built into this Constitution were limits enough. Now the first Congress then expressed the limits of this power through the very limited copyright statute they passed, In 1790, the First Copyright Act granted uh, copyright owners a 14-year term, renewable once, and that meant a total 28 as a maximum year term. That stayed the law for about 40 years. Then in 1831, Congress changed the law to give an initial term of 28 years with a 14-year renewal, meaning a maximum of 42 years. That stayed the law for about 80 years. Then in 1909, Congress extended the law again, granting a 28-year term, renewable by a 28-year term, for a maximum of 56 years. That stayed for about 50 years. Then in 1962, Congress began extending the term of existing copyrights 11 times over 40 years, until in 1976, they changed the system fundamentally to grant copyright owners who were uh, authors, a term of life plus 50, and companies and works produced before 1976, a 75-year term. And then in 1998, in the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, sometimes referred to as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, Congress granted a 20-year extension over the 76 term, life plus 70, or 95 years for corporate works. This is a history of increasing copyright protection, almost automatically at the end, as Congress continually extends the term to guarantee works not pass into the public domain. But even this picture is incomplete because it's not just the length of a copyright that matters, it's also how far it reaches, what parts of culture are regulated by copyright. And here, there's a very geeky, important part of copyright law that we often ignore, which is the formalities of American copyright law from the beginning of American copyright law until 1976. These formalities, like the requirement to register a work to get a copyright, or to renew the copyright after initial term, or to mark the work with a copyright symbol, or deposit the work with the Library of Congress, these formalities operated as an automatic filter that guaranteed that the only works that continued to get copyright protection were the copyrighted works that needed it. The works that didn't take these steps would automatically pass into the public domain, thus balancing copyright with the public domain. The Copyright Term Extension Act, the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, violated this history by granting copyrights in a way that was never filtered by any formalities. Works that were never required to pass through any of these required formalities had their terms extended, inconsistent, thus, with the history, and again, in my view, suggesting why it was unconstitutional. But after history, I started to think about the policy here. Was there a reason related to the fundamental purpose of copyright that made this extension make sense? And here, to understand why there isn't, we have to understand a fundamental point about copyright's purpose and the way that purpose is affected. Copyright's objective is to grant an incentive, an incentive to create new works by giving the copyright owner a promise of a certain period of time where he or she gets to control the work exclusively. The longer the copyright term, the less important is the copyright term way out in the future. So Justice Breyer, in an opinion in the Supreme Court, made this as an illustration. If you were a copyright owner, and you were told you had a 1% chance of getting $100 a year for 20 years, but you would only get that money in 75 years, meaning 75 years from now you could begin to get that money, how much is that promise worth to you today? Or put differently, how much of an incentive would you have to get that promise? Or how much would you be willing to pay for it? As he demonstrates the present value of that promise, what it's worth to people today is exactly seven cents. Meaning the incentive created by an extension like this, which is exactly the extension the Sonny Bono Act granted to copyright owners Uh, right now, is not very much. Now, there is some tiny bit of extension, but there's only an extension when the copyright is actually operating prospectively for works that have not yet been created. It has no effect for works that are already created, operating retrospectively. For these, there could be no incentive created, because again, incentives are prospective. You can't go back and create more incentives in the past. Even the United States Congress can't get Robert Frost to produce anything else or George Gershwin to create any more music. So the Copyright Term Extension Act makes no sense with respect to existing works because it provided no additional incentives for them. So the policy here made no sense at all. So then why did Congress do it? What sense was there for them in doing it? And the answer here is the obvious sense of dollars. These monopolies, granted by the law, are extraordinarily valuable. And for works that already exist and have proved their value, the value is something that the copyright owner can quantify. So just like the king could sell profits, monopolies for producing the Bible or for cards for extremely high sums, so to here, it's extremely valuable for copyright owners of, for example, the works of Robert Frost or George Gershwin or Walt Disney to get the advantage of that copyright for another 20 years. And they would be willing to spend up to the value of the monopoly in order to extend it. So this was their strategy. As reported by Bill Patry, they went first to Germany to get Germany to extend their term by 20 years, arguing that the war interrupted copyright functioning so they ought to extend the term to deal with the war. Then they went to the EU and told the EU that they needed to extend their term because Germany had just extended their term. Then they came to the United States and told the United States it had to extend the term because the EU had extended the term. But then when the United States extended their term, the EU was then told it had to extend the term some more because when the United States tried to match the EU by extending the term according to the EU's term, turned out we missed the mark and we extended our term beyond the term for some copyrighted works that the EU had set. Now, the point is for these there is no justification grounded in the policy of copyright for this copyright term extension. And in that sense, too, it struck me that this extension was unconstitutional. And finally, not a constitutional question, but there is a question, I think, of a kind of decency here. Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney, symbolize for me some of the greatest works in the American cultural history. Walt Disney symbolizes for me one of the greatest creators in American cultural history, because he demonstrates through his work a practice of building on the past. If you think of the large swath of extraordinary work with the Disney's, Disney Corporation produced and Walt Disney in particular, you see an extraordinary range of this work is work that builds on work that was in the public domain. stories of the Brothers Grimm, become the source material that Disney uses to create the great material that he creates. Indeed, Disney sometimes waited for a work to pass into the public domain before they would release a work based on it, sometimes would pay for work to make sure he could release work based on it. But the point is, his work was always continuing the conversation of a culture. It was an expression through a remix of the stuff that went before. Even this famous Disney cartoon, Steamboat Willie, which gave birth to Mickey Mouse, was itself, in a sense, a parody of a contemporaneous movie released by Buster Keaton named Steamboat Bill Jr. This is a form of expression that is celebrating the very best in remix creativity, taking and building upon the past to make something new. Now, after Walt Disney, Walt Disney Corporation changed. It was no longer the objective simply to create works and build on the past. Instead, it was also the objective to control Disney works to make sure others couldn't build upon them. So when Dan O'Neill produced this extraordinary cartoon, Air Pirates, Disney launched a lawsuit against him in order to control that expression that he had used building upon Disney's work. And then there was the push the Disney Corporation made to extend the term of copyright, to mean that nobody could do to Disney what Walt Disney had done to the Brothers Grimm. Now, whether constitutional or not, this is a sort of indecency in the cultural space, and that indecency is also a reason to criticize this change. Now if you think of these all together, if you think of the text, the history, the policy in this decency, they added up, in my view, to a clear statement that this change was unconstitutional. And so like any naive law professor, my intuition was, let's find a way to get to the Supreme Court and let them decide upon the constitutionality of this copyright term Extension Act. And that Extension Act in my view, would clearly be seen to be unconstitutional. So what I said to Eric Eldred was, let us take your case to the Supreme Court and let them strike this law down so that you can work in the way you want to work by making these extraordinary works available for free. So then we went to the Supreme Court. There I am in front of the Supreme Court arguing, this is unconstitutional. Now if you think about the Supreme Court at the time, there was an obvious division among the justices. There were five justices, Justice O'Connor, Justice Scalia, Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Kennedy, and Justice Thomas, who had identified themselves as originalists, people who were committed to the idea that the framers' understanding of the Constitution is what controls. And that understanding should be used to test any law of Congress to determine whether that law is valid under the Constitution. And the claim we wanted to make, supported by the history, was that the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act was inconsistent with the framers' meaning and therefore unconstitutional. So we believed going in, we had these five votes as a solid majority. But then in addition to these five, we thought, Justice Stevens consistently votes in a rational, balanced way in the context of intellectual property cases. He would certainly be on our side. And Justice Breyer had gotten tenure at Harvard through a very famous piece that argued copyright protections were likely much too strong in a wide range of cases and, therefore, unnecessary. We were absolutely convinced we would have his vote as well. So going into the case, we thought, we've got seven votes. To two, we should be able to prevail. Well, in fact, the Supreme Court did vote seven to two, but they didn't quite vote seven to two the way we thought. Instead, the seven were these seven, joined and led by the two justices whose, votes I've, whose views I've not described, Justice Souter and Justice Ginsburg. Both Justice Souter and Ginsburg, consistent with their principles, joined an opinion that said Congress had discretion to legislate here Both Justice Ginsburg and Souter had consistently fought the conservatives whenever the conservatives had tried to limit Congress's power in the name of the framers' understanding of the Constitution. So their votes were not a surprise. And there were two votes in dissent. Justice Breyer and Justice Stevens each wrote a very powerful dissent against the argument that the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act was constitutional. The only big surprise for me in the case was not so much even losing. It was the fact that these five conservatives, who had made originalism the center of their jurisprudence, not only voted against the originalist position, but didn't even have the courage to explain why. They stood silent as they allowed this law radically inconsistent with the framers' understanding of the limits that are to be imposed upon these state-granted monopolies to be upheld. Now this was a very important, indeed total defeat for the claim that the law through the Constitution should be constrained in its power granted to copyright owners. And indeed, I remember after the case was argued, one person said to me, Larry, how could you ever imagine that the Supreme Court would vote against all the money in the world? And the reality is my whole life as a law professor is devoted to the value that when the Supreme Court votes, it's not about money in the world. It's about their understanding of what's right. And in this case, we had failed to convince them about what's right. Now, I think there are actually a, two mistakes that we had made in the course of this case. One mistake was a mistake related to this figure, Mickey Mouse. The case became known as a kind of case against Mickey Mouse, or against the idea of Mickey Mouse being owned. There was this icon that began to spread across the web, Free Mickey, and the symbol of the case was the case was all about whether Disney should own Mickey Mouse. And while there was .05% of the American population that understood why it was important that copyright terms be limited, to the ordinary person, reasonably, the whole argument was a bit of a puzzle. Why not, most would say. Why shouldn't Disney own Mickey Mouse for the full term as long as Mickey Mouse is valuable? What's the harm? And the point is, the real harm in this case had nothing to do with Mickey Mouse being owned by the Disney Corporation. The real harm here came from everything else that was wrapped into copyright regulation because of the extension to benefit Mickey Mouse the 98% of creative work that is not even commercially available after 50 years, which continues to be locked up by copyright because of the extension to protect 2% of that creative work. Indeed, in the Eldred case, there was a brief filed by the copyright owners of this work. And they said, look, when you extend copyright, we make millions of dollars. So obviously, we're benefited by this extension. But if you don't strike down this law, the brief argued, a whole generation of film will literally disappear. And that's because it's extraordinarily complicated to understand and even identify the copyright owners for these old orphaned works. And that means most people can't even find who it is they're supposed to ask permission from. And when you can't find who the owners are, then you're not about to invest money in making the work available, in restoring it or archiving it, because all of that work triggers copyright law, and the copyright owner could appear out of nowhere and claim the right to control the work. And so this work is not archived or preserved until the copyright expires. But as this brief argued, by the time the copyright expires for works from the 1930s and 40s and 50s, all of these films will literally have disappeared because they're based on nitrate-based stock, and that stock will have turned to dust. Indeed, for works made before 1950, more than half of them have become totally unavailable, and work before 1980, before uh, 1929, 80% have become unavailable. Now, these are the unintended consequences of this greed. Mickey had a lobbyist, the public domain did not. But the problem we had was how we framed the case. And we missed the framing that would suggest to the court why what was at stake here was not whether Disney got more profit from Mickey Mouse, but the extraordinary range of work that would disappear because it continued to be regulated by copyright. The second mistake we made is a mistake that's quite common with us liberals. It's a mistake that got inspired by this extraordinary man, Thurgood Marshall. Inspired because Marshall had the extraordinary good luck in finding an issue that the Supreme Court would rule in his favor on in a way that radically changed the law, and eventually society. Thurgood Marshall, after spending many years fighting segregation in the lower courts, finally took to the Supreme Court a case to challenge state-imposed segregation. And in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, he won. And that victory created in the mind of, we liberals, this idea that what we do is wage our battles In the courts. Whenever we have a fight of justice or a fight of principle, the idea is we need to go to a court and get the court to tell us that we're right. Now this tendency, this bias, recognizes something important. It recognizes how valuable and just much of our constitution is. But what it doesn't recognize is that the problems we're talking about are often not really legal problems, they're political problems. And the understanding we need to create is not an understanding among five justices. It's an understanding among ordinary people. That it's not enough to frame an issue in a way that fits well in a Supreme Court brief. What's critical is to make an issue understandable to ordinary people, make it understandable to the public. And that's something we also failed to do in the Eldridge case. Now, since that defeat, January 16th, 2003, I've been spending an extraordinary amount of time trying to correct those mistakes, because there is an urgent need to respond to the increasing crisis that's developing if we're going to save the potential of digital technologies from the regulation of Congress. And there are two things that make this so urgent right now. The first of them is a change in the law that really began under President Clinton circa 1998. When Congress launched a war, well, Congress has launched many wars, but the war I'm talking about here is the Copyright War, a war which my friend Jack Valenti, the late Jack Valenti, used to refer to as his own, quote, terrorist war, where apparently the terrorists in this war are our children. Now to strengthen the laws, to make them so that they actually engage in control over how people use content and use culture, Congress began to push a series of changes in regulation so that how culture is used is better controlled by the copyright owners. New laws, new penalties, waging a war against use without control. That's the first change, a change in law. The second change is this explosion in creative freedom. An explosion that came not from the law, or not just from the law, but an explosion that came from technology. It was not earned by people changing the law, it was taken by people using technology, an explosion in digital creativity. This is something we could call remix. Let me give you some examples. In the context of music, early on there was a famous instance of the Beatles' White Album, taken with Jay-Z's Black Album, remixed to produce what DJ Danger called the Grey Album, which literally synthesized the tracks of the White Album and Black Album together to produce something gray. Or much more recently and much more dramatically, there's the emergence of this extraordinary creator called Girl Talk. There could be 200 songs that are remixed in a four-minute Passage in one of Girl Talk's creations. Or think about something called anime music videos. These are, everyone knows what animes are, these Japanese cartoons that are produced by um, Japanese artists and now spreading through American culture. Anime music videos are created when people take the cartoons and re edit them and set them to a music track. So that the anime is found art, but the product is a remixed art. Here's an example of that. The emergence of what we could call tubes, by which I don't mean the thing Senator uh, Stevens was referring to when he talked about the tubes that constitute the Internet, but really the YouTubes of the Internet, the various places on the network where people are creating work to be shared with others and commented upon by others through a matched form of creativity. This is a kind of a call and response that's increasingly taking over these locations of creativity. Here are two examples. So this has 1.7 million views by people in YouTube. And then that inspired this Creativity, 3.2 million views on YouTube. Or here's another example, this one a little bit technically more sophisticated. which inspired this... which inspired this... Is these are communities they are being created by the opportunity this technology makes available. And these communities engage in a kind of conversation, each one taking what the other had done and adding to it, mixing it and changing it and engaging in a creative act. It's the sort of thing that John Philip Sousa, a century ago, romanticized in testimony he gave to the United States Congress about an era where music was created By people participating in the creation. As he said, when I was a boy, in front of every house in the summer evenings, you would find young people together singing the songs of the day or the old songs. He wanted to preserve that kind of culture, and that's exactly the culture that these technologies are producing. Or maybe most important, ultimately, is the change this is affecting in politics. Here are three clips. Here's another one. but this still is my very favorite. This is remix, this is not piracy. The importance of this remix has nothing to do with the technique that each of these videos demonstrates. The importance is that this technique has now been democratized. This remix gives anyone with access to a $1,500 computer the power to say things differently, to express ideas in a form which people connect to much more than they connect to words. This is writing in the 21st century. It is literacy for a new generation. It is building a different democracy. It is building a different culture. It is rebuilding the culture Souza romanticized, a read-write culture where people participate in the creation and the recreation of the culture around us a form of culture that has existed from the beginning of human society all the way through the present except for one century the 20th century now these two changes change in law and a change in technology are producing a perfect storm for culture Because just as this technology is freeing people to speak and create using digital technologies, the law is stepping in and exercising control. And this war drives a certain rage among the creators. The targets increase their action to resist the law. This targeting, this resisting, this war, the product of an accidental architecture between the way the law is architected for copyright and the technologies of digital technologies interact. And this is perhaps the most extraordinary example of this unnecessary conflict. This video was produced by Stephanie Lentz, picture of her 15-month-old son Holden dancing, dancing, you might not recognize, to a song by Prince, Let's Go Crazy. That dance, posted on YouTube, excited a group of lawyers from Universal to organize and issue a command to Universal, to YouTube to take that video down. They thought it important to stop Stephanie Lentz from sharing with her friends this extraordinary motherly joy of seeing her child learn to dance. Universal has taken too seriously the song which they protect. They indeed have gone crazy here, as has our society in the midst of this war. For if this is a crime, as they say it is, if this is a crime, then we have a whole generation of criminals. The question is, how do we address this perfect storm of culture? And I suggest we need to learn something from the mistakes that we have made so far. First, we need to build a grassroots movement to make it understandable to everybody why the freedom here is so important. And secondly, we need to emphasize the creativity and not the, quote, theft that goes on here. And that's the objective of the Creative Commons movement to build a grassroots movement, that's the green in the creative commons sign, of creators, otherwise known as copyright owners, who take the default world of all rights reserved and modify it. They mark their creativity with signs that say, freedom, these rights you have. So all rights reserved is modified to some rights reserved spreading an understanding among people about the importance of balance in this regulation of culture, not about encouraging something called, quote, stealing, but encouraging authors to free the parts they don't need, so that they say, here's the control I need for my creative purpose or for my economic purpose or for my academic purpose, but this is all I need and the other rights, which the law gives you by default or gives me by default, you can have, they are free. Now in the five years since we launched Creative Commons, there have been millions who have taken up this opportunity to express themselves using these licenses. More than uh, 35 million in some counts, up to 150 million in other counts of works that are licensed in this way to say Some rights are reserved and others are given away. And the movement has spread internationally as more than 42 countries have now adopted a license for their own jurisdiction that makes it easy for people in those countries to use this freedom too. This is a steady progress towards an understanding and support for a more balanced regime of copyright regulation. That's Creative Commons. Now, in June of 2007, I had two moments of recognition. While at an extraordinary conference celebrating the success of Creative Commons in Dubrovnik, Croatia, gathering together hundreds of people from the iCommons movement around the world, people who are building out the commons, working with local educators and governments to make work more available, a grassroots movement that has really achieved something, I recognize we had made progress in a way that five years ago I had never imagined we could be so successful in achieving. Number two, I recognize the policymakers, nonetheless, were no better at understanding the balance that intellectual property required in Britain and Japan that summer. There was a debate about extending copyright yet again, still having no recognition ten years after this debate began about why extending copyrights made no sense. And so I recognized that even if we solved this free culture problem, there would be a real problem that remained. What's this real problem? Well, if you look around at all the places where there is screwy public policy, global warming in the United States is the best example, where for 10 years we have done nothing to address a fundamental problem recognized more than 10 years ago, if you look at all of these areas where we've got screwy public policy, behind these screwy public policies um, is one single influence, money, now I don't mean that there's something like quid pro pro quo bribes going on. I don't mean there's something like a Darth Vader corrupting congressmen or corrupting members of the administration. No doubt there is bribery, and bribery is punished, but that's not the problem we face. I don't think members of Congress are corrupt in that sense. I think most of them are there doing what they think they ought to be doing as well as they possibly can. Instead, the thing to worry about is the influence, the influence and access and attention which money buys, and the side of the argument that gets ignored when it doesn't have money standing in its side. This is the process that is policymaking in government today. It is a process that is fundamentally corrupted. It is a process that, until we fix, these screwy public policy problems will remain. So just as an alcoholic who might be losing his family, his job, and his liver, faces serious problems, the loss of his family, the loss of his job, the loss of his liver, he will not solve any of those problems until he solves the alcoholism problem. So too with public policy. There are many extraordinarily important problems we face, global warming, poverty, health care, and even free culture. But none of these problems are going to be solved until we solve the core problem that makes solving them impossible, this kind of corruption. Now, more than 30 years ago, when this man started a movement to remake government in a way that he thought would solve a significant chunk of the problems that he identified with government, He said this about democracy. A democracy cannot exist, Ronald Reagan said, as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves large S out of the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits from the treasury, with the result that the democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policies. Now, Reagan was right, in my view, to worry about the influence of one faction controlling government. But the problem is not the poor in our government. The problem is not the masses. They've never organized. They have no lobbyists. They have no influence inside of Washington. The problem is the corporations and the influence they leverage through their explosive control over the system of lobbying, using power to capture government. This is the corruption that I'm talking about. So I announced in June 2007 that corruption was going to be my focus. Not just the corruption of politics, there's equally important corruption to worry about in academia, in the legal profession, in the medical profession, in medical research, It's a general problem, I think, where we allow money to have an influence it ought not to have. Not because money is evil, but money, like water, in the wrong place, corrodes the system it's influencing and affecting. In the six months since I made that announcement, this issue has gotten significant attention, not because of me, obviously, but because two presidential candidates have made it the center of their message both John Edwards and Barack Obama, have been focusing on change, not just the change of getting the Republicans out of the White House, but the change that would come from fundamentally changing the system of influence, which is Washington. Neither of them takes money from lobbyists or political action committees, unlike Hillary Clinton, who takes money from lobbyists. Both of them focus on reform as the single most important message about how government needs to change. Now there's extraordinary excitement then about both of these candidates. And indeed one person told me, this is the time. This is going to be the time when change is delivered. But as I heard this moment, this expression of excitement in this moment, I began to notice an odd parallel. A parallel between the idea of racing to the Supreme Court to free culture And the idea of electing a president to solve corruption. The presidency and the Supreme Court are seen as these uh, deus ex machina, these machines that come in out of nowhere and solve the problem before us without anything done on our part. So just as the liberal lawyers have Brown versus uh, Board of Education in their head when they think of the reform that courts can do, The presidential reformers have FDR in their head when they think of the radical change a president can do. The idea that a president could change a nation, but it just won't happen. It can't happen alone. Because from day one, the president is constrained. He needs the support of Congress, the existing Congress, a Congress already captured by the same problem that causes the corruption. So then what could we do to respond here? Well, I think that we can actually do something similar to what we did with Creative Commons in the space of culture. Not Creative Commons here, but a similar alliteration here, a movement we could call perhaps the Change Congress Movement might even use CC, although my trademark lawyer at Creative Commons might have a problem with this, but here at least we're using the Framer's font. This movement would encourage members of Congress and candidates for Congress to commit, to pledge to three principles, three clear, simple principles. Number one, they would commit to abolishing earmarks so that this source of extraordinary corruption were removed from the political system. Number two, they would refuse to take campaign contributions from lobbyists. And number three, they would promote publicly financed campaigns. If they did these three things, they could call themselves CC sponsored or CC endorsed. And this would be a mark that both Democrats and Republicans could use to signal that whatever disagreements they might have about matters of fiscal policy or regulatory policy, the one thing they agree on is this pledge of support for this promise to reform the way government works. Now this campaign, like Creative Commons, would start out small, maybe one or two candidates, who would signal that they have as an objective making their campaign committed to this change Congress movement. And if it's done nationally and done well, meaning the campaign focuses itself nationally and gets national attention directed to it, and raises lots of support for these candidates who signal that changing Congress is their single most important commitment, then ironically, money will begin to signal other candidates that this is an extremely important issue to most people. And after two or three election cycles, we could imagine enough people building this coalition, this consensus, this caucus, driven to the idea of changing Congress. But would it work? I have no idea. I have no idea whether this can be made to work. But what I know can't work is the kind of magic that we imagine Supreme Courts or Presidents have, the kind of magic that produces results without any of the hard work. This change is only going to happen if many people participate in the politics of a democracy to change that democracy. And only this, only this practice of democracy ever works to change democracy. If ever anything works, it is going to be this. And so that's my work next. It's work to make this change happen. But for now, there remains an extraordinarily important movement of change called the Free Culture Movement. Vigorous and powerful, indeed as powerful as it has ever been, filled with an extraordinary diversity of leaders who are leading this movement to change. Creative Commons will be one part of this movement, but not the only part of this movement. And so if you're part of this movement right now, then in this last lecture I am offering on this idea of free culture, I want to thank you for what you have done to make this so successful so far, to thank you for this movement, a movement that is left to you to carry on to make sure to achieve the objectives which are now achievable. But if you're not part of this movement or not yet, I offer this last lecture as a way to invite you to join this movement. And join it not just because you believe in its objectives, but maybe more importantly, join it because you believe that the harm that's being done right now without its success is radically greater than any benefit that could be produced. I mean the harm that comes from this war that we're waging against our kids. Because if you think about the potential that this technology offers and the way in which it's wrapping itself into our lives, the one thing that's absolutely clear is that there's no way to kill this technology. We can only criminalize its use. We can't stop people from taking culture and remaking it in a way that expresses their ideas differently from how the original creator saw it. We can only drive this creativity underground. We can't make our kids passive in the way we were growing up, thinking a mixtape tape was the expression of creativity. We can only make them, quote, pirates. And the question we've got to ask is whether this is any good. Our kids live in an age of prohibition, living their life constantly against the law. This is extraordinarily corrosive, extraordinarily corrupting, corrupting of the very idea of the rule of law and ultimately corrupting of a democracy. We can do better than this. The law can do better than this. And the free cultural movement needs to make it so. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.